This episode of Dopey is brought to you by Oro Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends Jared, Bob, and Evan Haynes, who's actually our guest today. Newsweek has said this year that Oro is the number one rehab in the country. And they didn't even tell me to say that. I just found out. Incredible. They have decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental health disorders. They make sure your detox is as comfortable as possible. And their amenities are out of hand. As they say in the street, they are off the chain. Equine therapy, the uh, fucking sound bath meditation, surfing, and of course, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge. So if you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California for help, I so highly recommend going to Oro. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our great friends at Evolution Accounting and Consulting. They are a full-service accounting firm that can help you with your taxes, your bookkeeping, payroll, and almost any other business need you may have. Thanks to technology, they work with people from all over the country and pride themselves on building exceptionally strong relationships with their clients. They say that their passion allows you to pursue yours because they understand the stress caused by worrying about taxes and accounting issues. When you allow them to take this off your plate, you'll be freed up to focus on what you love to do. Perhaps more important than anything else, the firm is run by a fucking crackhead. Fortunately, he's been in recovery for years now and knows the struggle as well as the success. Use the promo code DOPEY when you connect with them at www.evolution-accounting.com to receive special discounts. That's www.evolution-accounting.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Knocking Doors Down, a podcast with the mission to end the stigma around addiction and mental health with humorous, honest, and vulnerable conversations featuring guest celebrities, experts, and everyday people. Celebrity guests sharing their stories and mental health issues include Charlie Sheen, Kat Von D., Butch Patrick from the Monsters, The Nature Boy, Ric Flair, Mike the Situation Sarantino, Edward Furlong, Lamar Odom, and me, Dave from Dopey. Also, Carmen Electra. That's a show right there. Hosted by Jason in recovery for addiction, childhood trauma, sexual trauma, and a family lineage of addiction. Co-hosted by Mikey, who struggles with substance abuse and mental health disorders, including depression and anxiety. Knocking Doors Down is available on all podcasting platforms, and check out their videos at kddpodcast.com. We are super excited to announce that the Zencaster podcasting platform is a new sponsor of the old Dopey Show. Check out the Dopey discount code in our show notes and stay tuned for why we are falling in love with using Zencaster for our podcast. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and I hope you guys are well. Hope your Thanksgiving was good. I hope this holiday season is coming in nicely for you. And for me, it was. But usually Hanukkah is way closer to Christmas than Thanksgiving. And when Hanukkah happens so close to Thanksgiving, it like 
put the holidays into high gear before I was ready for them. So I had to, you know, and for me, dealing with Hanukkah is trying to come up with a gift for my kids every night, which is something my parents never did for me. So I'm like, I'm taking the Jews will, your Jewish life is good. <laughs> You're Jewish. Being Jewish is good kind of approach. But I, I forget the presents every night. Last night, I bought them as presents, those stupid greeting cards that pop up into shapes. And then at the same time, Work is all of a sudden kicking into high gear and I'm back at customer service. So the phones are ringing off the hook on my phone. Fucking shit is happening and I'm feeling that holiday stress. And to top it off, the day after Thanksgiving, my little three-year-old daughter uh, got really sick. She got a, a crazy high fever and, um, and I didn't even realize. I mean, it seems obvious. Fucking hell. Did you hear that beep? That's the fucking customer service phone. I can't get it to stop ringing on my phone. It's making me mental. Anyway, I like there's a thing that pipes the calls in and I can't stop them from coming. So I'm insane. Now, it seems obvious that when your kid is sick, it's going to fuck up your flow. But for some reason, I didn't consider that, that when everything else is going on at work and she's not well at home because she's OK. You know, she just had a bad cold. But it, it, it just takes the balance away from me. And I felt myself a little bit spun out and a little bit crazy. And today on the show, we had uh, one of our sponsors, uh, the guy who created Aloe slash Oro, Evan Haynes, husband of Alexis Haynes, partner of Bob Forrest, and Evan's you know, the, you know, it's the place that deals with addiction with compassion and connection. And it made me think about compassion. You know, I am not always as compassionate as I would like to be. And I'm, I'm really not compassionate with myself. Like I fuck up and I want to like murder myself or indict myself or really give myself a hard time. So here is my, I never give directives in self-care or I don't even know if that's a thing, but I'm going to give my directive in self-care, which is go easy on yourself, guys. You're doing okay. It's fucking Christmas time, Hanukkah time, holiday time. Go easy on yourself. Go easy on your friends. I wasn't that easy on my friends or myself. I've been a dick, and now I'm ready to find the compassion. But before we find the compassion, uh, I want to tell you guys about our incredible... Dopey merchandise. Go to the Dopey store. Buy the merchandise. It's good. Have compassion for Dopey. There's new shit coming out. We just got actually a brand new original design is about to come out. But before that comes out, I know a lot of you missed that old alternate Dopey guy with the hat. I think Sam named him Rodrigo. Uh, he's the not normal Dopey guy, but the other Dopey guy. People think that the normal dopey guy looks black and this guy looks white, but I don't think either. I think they both look Spanish to me if I was going to racially profile the dopey logos. And if you guys are artists out there and you think you can draw a better head in the dopey logo, I don't think graphic design Ryan would be upset. So draw something and send it in. But look for some merch with the alternate dopey head who, again, producer Sam has called Rodrigo which might be racially profiling in itself. Go to dopeypodcast.com. We still have the classic Big Bird shit. 
the fucking Nirvana shit. There's so much stuff on there. Check it out. And then also I have, I have new beanies with Big Bird smoking. I have a hundred of them. You guys should buy them. I think I'm going to sell them for $25 each because I paid a lot for them. Made in the USA. Also, I've got trucker hats. I've got the stupid socks. Fucking Venmo me. I'm going to post pictures on Instagram right now. Also, Dopey Patreon's got a ton of shit on there. We had a video with Ask Aaron Carr. We have a video with me and Howie tasting our way through the Ben and Jerry's catalog. Also, just... I know this is just so many ads and stuff, but that's how I am on my path to doing Dopey full-time and how there will be more Dopey in the Doposphere for everyone to enjoy. So please join Patreon. I cannot tell you how much it helps. It's www.patreon.com slash Podcast. I don't know, man. I think I feel pretty good on where we are in the Dopeverse, in the Doposphere, and I still feel the gratitude from last month, but sometimes I still feel mental and I often feel incredibly disorganized, which is why I'm like thinking more and more about actually going to therapy. I'm thinking about cognitive behavioral therapy as an actual plan to get to the next place. And I have access to that with betterhelp.com. And this podcast, funnily enough, is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. You can check them out at betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast. We all know life is full of stressors, and it doesn't matter who you are or what you have. Your life is probably stressful. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Unload the stressors and get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. See if it's for you. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Dopey listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash DopeyPodcast. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash DopeyPodcast. And I'm just very excited about this week's show because I think it was pretty different. We have, like I said, Evan Haynes, who's been my friend now for a few years. He's a brilliant author. And he wrote this book, Can America Recover, all about like the, the history and the deep, dark dive into why so many Americans get addicted and really kind of supposing that America itself is like a drug addict and like how did it become like that? And more importantly, how can it recover? How can any of us recover really? And I think Evan is a, just a beautiful guy with so much fucking information. And I was honored to have him tell us about his story and his amazing book that he wrote with Bob. He wrote it with Bob Forrest. So here he is, the great Evan Haynes. Hello, Dopey Nation. I'm super excited about today's guest because I mention him on every episode when I talk about Oro Recovery, and I say Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. And this is Evan. I've been begging you to come on Dopey for years. Welcome. It's, thank you. 
David, it's such an honor. I'm, I'm a huge fan. Um, I'm like beside myself right now. I can't believe this is finally happening. Thank you for having me. I don't get crazy. Evan. It's a, don't get, don't, don't get, don't get nuts. Um, but, uh, I've, I've, I've come to know Evan for a few years. We've had a lot of really interesting conversations and I was always, I've been, you know, prodding and poking to see when the time would come. And Evan got together with his friend, Bob, and they wrote a book called recovering America, reimagining the drug problem. And Evan's like, wait till the book is out and then I'll come on. So the book is out. Welcome back. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank, thank you, thank you. And and just a, a slight update. So y you had one of the um, early editions, the official edition, which just went on sale uh, on Amazon, is called "Can America Recover?" Question mark. Wow. So um, yeah, that was that was Bob Forrest. He he really wanted to kind of pose this question, and it's the whole sort of accumulation of, of 10 years of conversations from when I very, met him the very first time 10 years ago. I think we talked on the phone for like two hours later that day. And we've been in this dialogue and this conversation ever since. And this book is the product of that conversation. Right. And I want to I want to just say, can America recover? But that would be a dumb thing to ask first. I know I know that won't go well to ask. That it's first. yes. It's yes. Now, if you ask Bob, he may say no. I'm going to say wholeheartedly yes. Do you think Bob would say no? I do. So why give us like I think we will start here. <laughs> why Why do you okay. think? Yeah, I, I I I have the jury out. Like I don't. I, it turns out I don't have many opinions about anything except for like ice cream and movies. But tell me, tell me, Evan, why, how can America recover before we do anything else? Tell me how. Well, uh, addicted people aren't supposed to recover. Uh, I mean, according to the National Institute of Drug Abuse, it's a chronic relapsing brain disease. Progressive. You ha progressive. You have it for life. There's, by definition, no recovery. There's no cure. Yet we see people recover from it all the time. Um, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's not easy and it doesn't happen as frequently as we would like, but the fact that it's happened once ever proves that it's possible. Right, right. That's interesting. And I, and, and I, I tend to veer on the side that anything is possible and especially anything that's good is possible. And I'm interested in your story as a recovering addict and alcoholic, but I want to talk about the book for a second, because there's one Please. thing in the book, the first thing that really caught me, and this book is a sprawling, intense book, tracing addiction roots back to the genesis of man, basically. Basically. I mean, it's hardcore. I mean, it's like it gets into every nook and cranny that you can imagine getting into with tons of incredible uh, information. But the thing that caught my brain was you're talking about evidence of, uh, of human civilization and like mm -hmm. what defined the first bit of human civilization. And you cite Margaret Mead finding uh, the, the, the healed femur uh, like there was, could you explain that to the audience? Cause I'm going to fuck it up. So someone once asked her, she was a very famous anthropologist, uh, what constitutes, you know, the first signs of civilization and people might think it's a wall or some shard of pottery. 
she said it's a healed femur that what that meant was uh, someone would have had to look after this the largest bone in the body takes six weeks to heal so someone would have had to protect that person from possible predators would have had to hunt for them would have had to care for them so she she marks that moment that emergence of civilization uh, with the discovery of a healed femur that it was compassion that is the mark of civilization which i think is a really nice uh kind of view on it it, it depends too I, I also cite um i do cite the creation of the first wall which happened to occur even before again we were able to make pottery uh it was built by hand the, the walls in uh, uh jericho about 10 or eleven thousand years ago around the same time uh, agriculture emerged even though since i uh wrote the book with bob i've i've come to believe that the separation uh that you know really addiction is is kind of characterized by that separation from nature first occurred with the emergence of cave art uh, which was probably 40 50 thousand years ago and before that i mean we were just like as we still are but we were purely primates we didn't feel uh regret we didn't feel separation we, we maybe felt anxious but we had no ability to reflect on that anxiousness and 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 kind of give it form or give right. it uh some some kind of shape the reason i love the healed femur is because it because every week i talk about oro's mission of, of healing drug addiction with compassion and connection. Yeah. And, uh, and the idea that then it's that compassion of one human allowing the other yeah. human to rest that makes for their, the recovery of their bone to be possible. And it's the yeah. same thing that makes it possible for an addict or an alcoholic to recover. And I think if America could find compassion, it could be the way America recovers. Yeah. It's all yeah. that, right? It's all that. And so as long as there's been that separation, there's been, and, and, and all the bad stuff, there's been this ability for us to, I think, get ourselves back together uh, and do great things. And that's, that's what America is about. That's what recovery is about. And, and the whole book is meant to be this really, I think, fascinating parallel between a country, a, a beautiful country, you know, with a with a troubled past, it is the country as an addicted person, and it's not a disparaging thing. Um, no, no, because I, it's like to, it's like to say somebody's addiction is uh, right. is a disparaging thing, which it's not. It's but not. one thing the audience might not know about you, Evan, is that you're not American; you're Canadian. Well. To be clear, I'm American now. Okay, Originally, sorry, I I'm, apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to be accused of anything here, but I am a first-generation immigrant uh, from Canada. And also, the audience might not know that you're married to the lovely Alexis Haynes, who's been on Dopey many times. Very true. Anyway, very true. Now, when did this uh, epiphany of compassion as the answer come to you? Can you remember when it hit you? It's a great question, and, and really, I have to thank Bob for that. Uh, so we were a simple sober living. This was a little over 10 years ago, and 
everyone was trying to get us to meet Bob Forth. They said, you got to meet my friend Bob. you got to meet Bob. Someone finally introduced us, and though it was in passing, and then within, I think, a couple of weeks, he'd referred a client to our sober living. And so he would come and hang out with his client, and he would kind of hold court around the kitchen table, and we would all hang out. And I was just fascinated by him and yeah. loved his stories. Yeah. And he would he would tell us, uh, you know, because Jared and I, both originally Canadians, um, where I think like it's a cultural thing, we're kind of less inclined to institutionalize one another. We're like less inclined to to kind of penalize or you know be so punitive as I think maybe more prevalent in the culture here. We're kind of like laid back and uh, all that. So Bob would ask. He says because we had very few rules, he says, you probably felt lazy, that you weren't really doing anything. And I said, yeah. He goes, no, no, no. This is the thing. This is what your gift is. And I was like, what? I didn't realize that not doing something was as important as doing something. And so... You guys you guys doing... were like, you guys are like the Seinfeld of sober houses. It's a sober yeah. house about nothing. 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 Just, just being there. Just being with the clients, genuinely caring about how they are and that they're successful in their whatever outcome they're trying to achieve. We don't know if someone has a problem, but if they think they have a problem, hey, we're here to help however we can. So it's this really like, Alan Watts used to talk about it like uh, cooking a fish. You only want to flip it once. Mm. You don't want to start flipping it over back and forth. Things going to fall apart. So less is more. And, and I think in terms of relationships, less is more. That the most compassionate thing we can do with others is not try to control them. And So hold on. Let me, I want to get here. back to your flipping yeah. the fish metaphor. Okay. How is it like flipping the fish? Because if you really, I fucking, I'm not the greatest fish cook and I tend to flip it too many times and I'm trying to control the cooking and the fish flakes apart, right? Is that what the, the idea is? Right. So we were doing, I think, a lot of this stuff just intuitively at the time. And so I've only kind of been able to formulate, formulate thoughts around this more recently. But um, C.G. Jung would say, for example, that the psyche has this innate healing ability, that it is self-organizing. And so we just kind of have to, like, stand back or however you want to look at it, create a space, hold space for, for really people to heal themselves. So we're not trying to fix anybody, change anybody. We're really just here to provide a place for people to heal themselves. And, and that compassionate, empathetic environment is it, where, you know, we kind of follow the, the philosophy of uh, Carl Rogers, which he, he talked about unconditional positive regard. And if you provide that unconditional positive regard, people have a tendency to heal, heal themselves. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of, I, I mean, the only thing that I remember about young from school was, uh, and I, again, I'm going to mess this up. It was like, I was an art history student and I feel like there was an abstract expressionist who painted symbols that were somehow connected to Jungian philosophy, mm. like the idea that every cell contained like all of the information, like all of the past information, the future information. And, um, 
And that's what I kind of hear when you talk about like somebody's ability to actually self heal when they have the, the ability just to chill and be free. Now, before we delve into this freedom, if you know me, you know how obsessed I am with making dopey. And if you know dopey, you know, we've had some issues with our audio quality which is why we're so excited to begin a partnership with Zencaster. They are a superior podcasting platform with crystal clear audio and video. If you are already an established podcaster, or if you're a new podcaster, I cannot suggest trying Zencaster enough. Just go to Zencaster.com, use the promo code DOPEYPODCAST, and save a whopping 30%. They connect you and your guests. They provide the uh, transcripts. It's an amazing platform. Please check it out. And now back to Evan. I don't want to jump around all over the place because I really want to hear about your story. Yeah, I'm tired of my story. I want to hear the origin of Evan. But when you talk, one thing in the book that really kind of blew me away was when you talk about these communities in Italy and Germany uh, where they go for years at a time, the amount of time it takes to get a degree and they, they farm or they produce goods. And, and it's, or, or it's, it's like giving the afflicted a chance to actually be living. And you also, they, you also talk about it in the book in terms of homelessness. Rather than putting homeless people into shelters, you talk about housing the homeless. Right, which is like a radical idea. <clears throat> and, and, and imagine that. Like, so a lot of people here in L.A., like, they, they complain about the homeless. The homeless are all over the homeless. What about homelessness? Homelessness, to me, is the problem. It, it's, it's absurd. Yet we take it for granted that it's just the way it is because... I think it's because we live in a ruthless kind of uh, hyper-individualistic culture and where it's every man, woman, and child for him or herself. And so imagine when we were living in those tribal uh, cultures, and I'm not saying, yeah, and I'm not saying that they were, you know, perfect or that there wasn't violence or whatever kind of negative uh, thing that we might want to associate with them. But I will tell you, for someone to be excluded from a community, to be cast out like that, that would have been a big deal. That would have been huge because it would have meant death. Uh, it wouldn't be taken lightly, I can assure you. So the, to me, it's, it's insane that anyone is homeless, especially today where we have the ability to feed, clothe, and house every single human being on earth. Well, there's something up. There's something else going on. Why? Why would we let this happen? So what? What would it? I mean, I think that those communities you describe in the book in Germany and in Italy, like it sounds so revolutionary. And even just the idea of housing the homeless in a permanent way, and it may. I mean, like I don't know what the hell what kibbutzes do, and I don't think they do that. Mm. Um, but I mean, like, how could it be? like that housing is constructed in California and homeless people can move in. Like what would it take for something like that's where the question of can America recover really comes into my head? Cause how could they do it? How could they do it? So yeah, it would, it would, it would require first, I think uh, a, a huge act of the imagination. I mean, so look at the way retail is basically dying there's all this space. There's office space, right. which is now also malls. dying. All these malls. There's space. Right. There's space. We can build up. You turn all those malls, all those office buildings, you come and you retrofit them. Everything can be retrofitted. Um, 
the, this world is a creative place. It's always been changing and evolving. So we see ourselves as creative agents co-participating, co-creating this world. And that's going to take a huge kind of act of, uh, of our imagination, imagining what's possible. It's going to take a, a re-evaluation, a reassessment of our value system, what we think is important. And, and it would really take kind of digging down into our value systems and wondering, one, why we allow homelessness in the first place, what we really think about homeless people. Like, did they make some bad decisions? Are they not working hard enough? Are they lazy? Are they addicted? Do they have mental health problems? I learned so much uh, in our writing this book. For example, when I first started, I was going to kind of write it all the homeless part about the homeless being having mental health problems. They don't have any more mental health problems than, than the rest of us. About maybe 40% of them suffer from mental health problems. It's about very similar to the general population. This is extreme poverty. It's the fact that 40% of Americans don't even have $400 in savings in case of an emergency. Uh, but there's but there's a whole huge segment of the population that uh, lives with food insecurity. Uh, they can't pay for their rent coming up. There's kids who go to bed hungry here in Los Angeles uh, many nights of the week <clears throat> because because they're food insecure. Right here in one of the richest cities in the richest country in the world. Uh, it's like one thing Bob says: never have so many had so much and been so miserable because there's that going on and even those with money are miserable and desperate and i think and what i think we're trying to argue in this book is that it's all connected the environmental crisis it's all connected right so it's going to take a, a a major kind of revisiting of what we think is important and questioning what is the nature of work what is the nature of of housing what is the nature of all of this stuff, it's all connected and it's all connected to addiction. And I think that the turning the corner on any of them is, again, with compassion. It would require yeah. someone, you know, imagination is a great word, and compassionate imagination with resources. And then, like, I like it when you describe those communities in, in Italy and in Germany where they're actually producing goods and they're, like, learning a craft. And it's like it becomes good for everybody, basically. It's like, well, it's like composting. Exactly, and it's very cultural because that you're you're talking about. Uh, <clears throat> you see, I am I'm from Manhattan, but I know about composting. <laughs> composting is great, and it, it it is exactly like that. And so that's Fleckenbuhl and San Patrick Nano, right? And they produce beautiful products, uh, food and uh, artisanal um, uh, foods and and fine uh, graphic art and. Uh, I feel like I should contact them and see if they could make dopey art. See if I can get some dopey art made out of the, the, those communities. I think that would be 100%. I, I wonder how I could do that. That's something we need to look into. Um, what I really want to know, though, Evan, is how did this all happen to you? Like the story that it says in the book is a very sad story about your mother. Yeah. Yeah. My mom took her life when I was 14. You know, I was even before that uh, growing up, you know, visiting her frequently and Psychiatric hospitals, uh, you know, she was diagnosed with uh, bipolar disorder, uh, 
schizoaffective disorder, borderline personality disorder, clinical depression, everything. This this was my life for me. All of this, this whole thing, the book, the work we do, it's deeply personal. It's deeply personal. It comes from the um, fact that you had to you you were raised by a woman who was incredibly sick and ended up taking her life, and you had. I yeah. mean, that had to have been the driving force. And, and when did it occur to you that you could help others? Was it when you were young or it wasn't until you were suffering? Well, right. So it, it was an interesting turn. I And I'm sorry was, about your mother. You know, it's, it's oh, so sad. You. And, you know, I, I mean, it's it's hard to to like make sense of a tragedy from the past. You know what I mean? But I am I was I was so sad to read that because I didn't know that about you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And, and it's unfortunately all too common. Uh, so she was this incredible artist and, and so funny, so intelligent, uh, just, just a, she was a work of art herself. Right. And, and, uh, I remember years later I was working in restaurants, you know, and we would get off at one or two in the morning and go to the after hours and drink. And I was back at, uh, one of my coworkers apartments and we were, drinking wine and and I you know I'd get sad I guess and, and talk about my mom and she gave me this perspective that stuck with me ever since which was and it, I just take it for granted now but at the time it was kind of like a revelation like what if your mom was just really sensitive and she was feeling the pain of the world which she was. I was like oh which she was and I was like oh my god and so for so long, I mean, when I was a little kid, I wanted to snap my fingers and for her to be normal. I just, I couldn't accept that there was something wrong with her or, you know, that she wasn't like the other mom. She was a little unstable often. She was uh, rough around the edges. She, she, she th this, um, she wasn't normal. And I wanted to snap my fingers. I wanted to fix her and make her normal like the other moms. And this is the idea, right? This is the whole idea with mental health treatment and with addiction treatment. We want to make them normal like us. Well, but wait. So this, this thought has, has now morphed into this whole really paradigm, and, and a new paradigm for me and one I want to help promote that it wasn't that she wasn't ready for this world, but that this world wasn't ready for her. Right. There was nothing wrong with her. There was nothing wrong with her. Right. There's something wrong. There's something wrong with us. <laughs> right. It's hard. It's, it's, it's hard because like, you know, the world is, you know, you, you'd imagine that we wouldn't be in the situation that we are like now. You demand, and, and you talk about, about work and, and the work week, or I always think about like Superman comics, like, like how the Kryptonians all wore these unitards and had access to all sorts of information and food and none of them were killing each other. And they had this relatively peaceful lifestyle where they're not like going crazy, selling sandwiches and, and working, you know, hundred hour weeks or whatever in order to get by. And like, that's why somebody really sensitive is really suffering now because the world isn't changing the way it should be, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and there is. I mean, you look at sci-fi, you look at all the whole history. I mean, we've been utopians since at least, I guess, Plato's Republic um, that we've imagined. And that's our, this is, again, that self-reflection -ref that makes us 
humans, I guess, this, this ability to worry about the past and imagine what the future might look like, we, we could, by again, participating in this kind of creative process that is life, we could create that. And maybe we, we will could create that. When... I'm sure we will. I know it's our destiny. Uh, it doesn't just happen automatically. We don't just kind of throw our hands up though and say, well, one day, one day I'm, I'm convinced it won't happen in my lifetime, but I, I also believe that we need to shift the conversation, move the conversation, imagine these worlds and, and what they might look like and how we want to treat each other in them. And, uh, that, that, that this act of imagination might be the most important thing of all, that, that, right. that there's nothing, nothing more important. And that's something to recover in general is imagination. Like yeah. it seemed like imagination was, when, when I was a kid, imagination was very important, and I don't hear many adults talking about it uh, in the same way. But I want to talk more about you because— you know, you, you had to, you had to, I mean, your mother suffered and she died and then you had to live. When did your alcoholic addict life develop? Oh, well, I mean, pretty much the next day. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, I, I was at a uh, friend's birthday party the day of, and it, I remember we were watching like Charles Bronson movies. There was a pool party. There was pizza. It was about, I was 14 years old. It was about as wholesome, uh, as things get for kids that age. And uh, I remember, we, I think we went out for dinner or something like that with the birthday party and the kids, some of the kids were gonna stay over one more night. It was a sleepover, they were gonna stay over one more night. And I remember calling my dad. Uh, I live with my dad, I live with my mom on the weekends. And uh, I remember calling my dad to ask if I could stay one more night and he goes, no, you need to come home, we're gonna come pick you up which was weird because they never drove me anywhere. Right. And I was like, okay. And I sat out on this corner on this curb and I was like, thought to myself, Oh, Oh my God, my mom's dead. I just, I just knew it. You Somehow knew it before knew it. anyone told you. Yeah. Before anyone told me, I said, my mom's dead. <clears throat> I mean, which just speaks again to kind of the strange nature of what we are. I mean, we're, I, I happen to now believe we're all connected. Uh, in very profound ways. But anyway, I knew that I knew she was gone. And I think I'd lost my grandma who was a, of, of all the craziness and chaos I grew up with. My grandma was really this uh, stable, nurturing, deeply loving force. And she had died a couple of years before I bawled, I cried, I was awful. I grieved this time. I, I walk into the house. It was, it was, uh, there was there was there was silence on the on the on the drive home. We get into the house. My dad tells me nothing. Nothing. I I didn't cry. I'll tell you. I was fourteen. I didn't cry until I was about thirty. Thirty five or thirty six. We we had just opened Oro House, um, and I was sitting around the smoking tables about 10, 11 years ago, with a friend of mine who attempted to commit suicide a few times and I was telling her how I thought she could help so many people, some of the young women, um, but it was so amazing that she's here. And I was reading this thing that my doctor had written about my mom and I, and, and I felt this thing coming up from deep inside me and uh, I started bawling, I started bawling. I did again, uh, watching the end of Paris, Texas, uh, last Valentine's Day with Alexis, 
on a little mini staycation. And I've seen that movie half a dozen times, Harry Dean Stanton. Uh, everyone should go see it. Um, I never and, saw that. Uh, oh, oh, there's this scene. He's basically, Harry Dean Stanton's trying to reconnect his, his boy with, with his mother. That they'd had a relationship and broke apart. And anyway, this final scene, and I felt that same thing welling up in me. Uh, and just sort of bawling. So there's this grief, there's this grief. But the next day, after I found out, uh, I literally was not hanging out with my kind of, you know, normal friends. I started calling these guys I knew who who were like kind of outcasts and, uh, you know, I don't know if they were goths or rockers, but they were... Did you say different. goths or rockers? Yeah, I don't okay, know. Okay, I'm with you. No, I'm with you. Them. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, they, you know, they had long hair, and I don't know if they later may have been called emos. I mean, it's, you know, who, who even knows? But they were, what I could say they were, was outsiders like me. And so... Were you were you an outsider that, before oh, yeah. that? Or was it your uh, mother's death that, like, made it be like, holy shit, I can't, I can't be normal anymore? Or I, I, I relate to their anymore. misery now? Like, I'll never smile again, I remember thinking. I would stand in front of the mirror, like practicing smiling. I mean, I still feel that. I still feel that. I'll, I'll never be the same, but the, maybe the difference is I've, I've found peace with it now. These are my people. These are my people, the ones who've been hurt so bad. Right. And the ones who've been kind of left out, locked out, kicked out. Uh, a lot of my friends after that, after this event, they lived in, you know, group homes, halfway houses, sort of, you know, the, I had, I had a couple of friends that were actually homeless, uh, and I remember I stayed out with them one night. It was freezing cold, I, you know, in Canada, and uh, I remember it was like three or four in the morning. I'm like, "What have I done? Like, <laughs> I, I never want to, you know, stay out all all night again." But um, yeah, these are my people. These are my people, and really, this book, Bob, and my book is a is a love letter to addicted people and to the people who care about them or who want to know more about them and learn about them. But how did your um, own, how did your own alcoholism like develop hmm. in that time? Like when, like what, what got you to the point where you were, became recovered or in recovery or, right, or sober? Right, right. Like how did that, like, what was the transition? Cause I think, listen, I think, I think your book is amazing. I, I think yeah. the, the story you just told me like broke my heart and yeah. uh, and I think that your personal story, like you're talking to an audience of these people, and I know that they would love to hear what happened exactly. Well, you know, and uh, so it started maybe slowly. Because you've always said to me, you've always been like, Dave, I, I'm not a heroin addict, and my story isn't so crazy, like blah, blah, blah. But it, it's you got to the same place. We are the same people, you know what I mean? And, and the yeah. audience is the same, too. And I, I just think that that's, you know, it's useful to know it, you know? Absolutely. Uh, okay. So, well, it started with, you know, cigarettes and weed and beer um, and uh, hard liquor. But then I got into LSD when I was probably 15, 15, 16. I did that for a few years. We, we did it every weekend. We do a lot. You I loved did. acid. I did. I loved it. I loved it. What did and you, what did you love about it? I don't know. I mean, I used to say that it was because it like took me so far out of my world that, you know, that, so I like the, the, the way it kind of dissociated me from the world, disconnected me from, from, from a, you know, more kind of painful existence. 
I believe now, it, 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 looking back, that it satisfied this uh, kind of quest for something, something other, something weird, something uh, mysterious. Right. Some invisible. It was a taste. In, it was in, a taste of that deep mysticism and, yeah, the, and the deepest it, vibration of everything. That crazy really, infinite shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly that. I'm still fascinated by today. And I was the type of guy, and I don't know if, if everyone was. I was where I remember one particular time, my friend and I, you know, we were coming down off an acid trip, and we looked down and we saw these sort of weird, or I saw these weird Aztec you know, those kind of circles, calendars or whatever they were. And, and we were talking and I realized, and he says he sees the same thing. So we're, how is this even possible? We're looking down at some, some pavement and we're seeing these crazy Aztec uh, patterns, uh, these Aztec calendars. And the next day I went to the library to learn about it. Um, my experiences with LSD, I'd say, were, were one of the main reasons I went to school. Uh, I took a couple of years off after high school, went back because I'm, I'm interested in philosophy and religion and art and literature. Um, I, I remember when, because, I was in, when I was in college, I, I took a ton of acid and I ate a ton of mushrooms. And I remember one weekend we went to my friend's house in uh, Poughkeepsie, and his father had us cutting wood for him, okay? Like he lived on this in this big house on this on this piece of land and we were all in the woods cutting wood and he had this wood splitting machine like I had never seen one of these things. And uh and when you'd split the wood, the bark would come off and underneath the bark were these designs that like look kind of like what you're talking about. Um, but also reminded me of that Jungian symbol thing. So I think this right. is happening to everybody who, who, who are taking psychedelics. They're getting these flashes and, and, and these patterns are, are popping up everywhere. I, I think that's, that's it's just cool. I, I love hearing other people having the same experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then if anything, it was, uh, it, it was weird because I mean, like I said, we would take a lot and it kind of scared me from drugs a little bit, frankly. And, and, in some ways, it's probably why I didn't maybe get into harder drugs at that point. I'm in school now. I would take handfuls of um, ephedrine. I would smoke yeah. weed every day, uh, and I would drink. I would drink. I would drink wine. I would drink hard liquor, uh, and that was kind of the way it was. But I was in school still. At least I, I finished my first degree. I got into grad school. Um, and then I think it was after the coursework, but before I wrote my thesis, I, I, I'd been kind of almost like a hermit for so long. I was in a long-term relationship. I, I was really just, I would get a school son, I would go to the library and I would write my paper. Um, I didn't realize even college was for partying. I, I, I would actually learn and write. And, and, but it was probably then some lost time I was making up for and whatever that at some point I started going out I started going out to clubs. I started becoming more social. I started drinking more. I started, and I, there was some point, and I don't know what happened late, later in my. Was that still in Canada of, or was that here? Yeah, still in Canada. And then, and then it moved down here with me, this kind of shift to like, uh, I don't even want to, I don't even know how to say it, but like, I, I didn't care about things anymore. I didn't care about the world anymore. Uh, I stopped caring about other people. 
I stopped caring about the world. And all I wanted was to kind of get stuff. It's, uh, I mean, talk about the American dream, I guess. I mean, I wanted, I wanted nice cars. I wanted some money. Um, and so that's what I did. And I was miserable. And it all kind of came to a head. I'd been living here for a couple of years. I was out at uh, a club one night. You we were in Los in, Angeles? It was in Los Angeles. Uh, I used to, uh, we used to go to this place called Cinespace in Hollywood. It was fun, actually. Steve Aoki was the DJ, and it was great. And I, I remember I got so drunk. I got in a blackout, drove my car. Uh, on a sunset, apparently 70 miles an hour. The police were following me. I had no idea uh, in, until I crashed into another car. Thank God I could have killed somebody that night. Thank God everyone was okay. Yeah. Uh, but I came, I came to on the, on the sidewalk in handcuffs uh, and ended up uh, going to LA County Jail. Um, I remember telling my cellmate, who was kind of like a street kid, I think he'd been picked up in a Starbucks down in Venice Beach the night before for disorderly conduct or something. I remember telling him, man, I think I might have a problem. It had never occurred to me, ever. And I said, I think I might have a problem. I, Wait, I did I you confide in this into the, into the Venice street kid? Yeah, he was, my, he, was my cell, he was my cellmate. And I said, I think I have a problem. I, I think I need to switch to beer. And uh, so I did. I was in there for a few days and got out the first night, drank a couple pints of beer, felt fine. I was very subdued. Um, thought, okay, well, you know, I'll never have a sense of humor again, but that's fine. This is safer. I'll never, I'll never, I'll never go back to jail, hopefully. And uh, the second night, same thing, mission accomplished, drank couple beer felt fine uh acted normally uh the third night i think we were back at cinespace had a beer and then i'm up at the bar and i ordered a shot and that's sort of the last thing i remember i'm in another blackout i'm i'm you know clearing tables of food at mel's diner onto the floor uh just sweep uh, just kind of, just knocking just things sweep, off the table just, crazy yeah no like, just that one sweep you ever wanted to do that just like one dramatic <laughs> sweep the you entire did. table. Yeah, I did that. Okay, it was awesome. Yes, and uh, yeah, I was trying to fight everyone. I'm in bare feet. I'm jumping into bushes. My friend walked into, he'd stayed over, walked into my bedroom the next morning. He's like, "Dude, you're an alcoholic." I said, "What?" And he's telling me all these things I did, and I'm, I'm like, "Oh my god!" Between these things and just having been in jail a week before. I thought, oh my God, I really am. And I was actually kind of relieved. It was right. like, okay, this is, there's a word for what I am. And uh, I was really excited. I even called a few friends. And who told what? you? I'm an who, who told you? Just a friend who had to put up with me all night and somehow got me home safe. And then did Just you go, did you wind up going to a meeting out of that? Well, I did. I was sentenced to A anyway. And so, so funny, I'd have these court cards. But first meeting I went to was at the log cabin on Robertson. And I'm looking around, there's like, there's Anthony Kiedis and all these like cool young people and uh, pretty girls. And I'm like, okay, okay, I can do this. And I remember even the first uh, uh, girl who was speaking up at the podium, she was like speaking my language. I'm like, oh my God, these are my people. Like, I was so thrilled. I would get my court card signed after and I would say, don't worry, don't worry. I'm going to come back even after these you know, 10 AA meetings, like they're like, okay. Like didn't really care, but I, I was thrilled. I was sold. I was, uh, instantly kind of sold on the, on the whole thing. 
And you, and you actually were. Did you actually? Yeah. Did you actually stick it out after that? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, uh, so that was uh, uh, November second. Was Jared an alcoholic too? I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, well, it was funny. I was sober for five years before he got sober, and but I liked hanging out with him. We'd go to parties. He was hilarious, especially if he had a little cocaine. And uh, if he didn't have cocaine, he would like sometimes like scare girls in my direction. We were in New York one time. He was he was a sloppy mess, and we went out for pizza, and uh, we were at the the. Uh, I forget where we were, the Bowery or some, somewhere. And uh, we, I went, I went to the bathroom. I come back. He's like sitting with this poor girl, and I walked over. I'm like, "Is this guy bothering you?" <laughs> you know. So yeah, he was like my sort of drunken wingman. It was. It was uh, and that girl turned out to be Alexis Haynes. No. <laughs> and and the end. No. <laughs> so 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 you got sober. At, from from the consequences of this of this bad living yeah. but the the craziest part is that it put you i mean i guess it's not the craziest part to me it is though because you're so built for this stuff like it's mm. everything that you wanted without even destiny. knowing right it was destiny all, all of these things happen necessarily i mean i happen to think 99.9 percent of suffering on earth is unnecessary i don't i don't recommend it i don't think i don't think it's necessary but for me for the way my life turned out, every one of these things were a hundred percent necessary to happen the way they happened. Now, and, and I, I hear you. And another thing that this reminds me of in the book that just like really blew my mind. Um, you're talking about um, native plants that produced psychedelic reactions uh, in one of the chapters. It was a chapter called uh, Radical Recovery, I believe, which I really loved. And out of nowhere, you're talking about this. I, I don't remember the name of the plant. I, I know it became known as the belladonna treatment. What was that right. plant? So uh, that was belladonna, but uh, it's related to datura. Right, that's the name, datura, that I yeah, couldn't remember. And henbane. These are all tropane alkaloid-containing plants that have been used throughout history. They've found residues of datura uh, in uh, cups, in containers, from you know ancient Greece or even in uh, where where the sort of Celtic and 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 Greek influences would have been found in places like Spain, um, you know, with bits of uh, frogs or lizards um, and sometimes ergot, which would be kind of an LSD-containing or type uh, fungus that grows on uh, grain, and which would, there's a very strong uh, theory uh, supporting the uh the idea that that's what they were drinking in the kukion which was in ancient greece uh, part of the mystery rites at eleusis which ran for two thousand years plato himself participated in every every greek citizen not not even citizens just citizens slaves anyone who spoke greek i think was the only requirement could participate in the um rites which were nine days and nine nights drinking from the from the Kukion, but uh, with the henbane and datura, uh, uh, this was apparently Shiva's favorite plant. From India. Um, from in India, so the god Shiva. Uh, in fact, in, in Sanskrit, it's uh, datura is known as the crown of Shiva. Um, right. But the thing so, that I just didn't expect what happened when you're, I'm reading about all this stuff, 
and and it and it fast forwards to the 1930s where they're using well, where, this belladonna cure right yeah and so that was at town's hospital which you know we know now is the place where bill wilson got sober and he was administered the belladonna cure uh like all the patients there were uh, every hour for 50 hours and uh this is a from what i understand i've never tried it but a very difficult ordeal drug uh but it will it will produce uh uh fantastic um uh, sort of hallucinations and visions and this is where bill wilson had his white light experience that led to him getting sober and led to directly to the creation of alcoholics anonymous i think that's incredible i have so many questions about this uh, i want to start with like why is is this in public knowledge it is but it's sort of downplayed i mean people in AA don't want to talk about it that much uh for obvious reasons um I think just in our in our culture, which is a little more uh, puritanical, uh, it, it, it just doesn't kind of compute that the guy maybe most associated with sobriety uh, found that sobriety through this, you know, powerful uh, uh, visionary plant medicine. And by the way, Datura was the active ingredient in, in uh, uh, witches' flying ointments. I mean, the kind of associations and the, the history that's used it was used by the Shumash Indians here where, where I am now and so this in stuff Malibu, grows then. everywhere this belladonna grows everywhere the most yeah, incredible and, thing to yeah. me though like is the is this you know first of all like because because I go to AA and, and I shouldn't even I never say that on the show but I go to my 12-step yeah. fellowship in uh in Long Island and it's very meat and potatoes and it's very like I got sober from vodka and I couldn't stop drinking and blah, blah, blah. And it's never like mysticism. You know what I'm saying? It's like they say my right. higher power, blah, 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 you know, and, and keep your fucking it's mouth shut. And there's no yeah. mysticism. And yet it is all mysticism, really. It's all mysticism. I mean, it's really AA. And, and I, I fell in love with it when we were writing this book because you know, again, for us to be able to say anything, we had to learn some stuff. And what I learned about AA really made me fall in love with it. And I, and I thought, like, why, like you say, why is this not being discussed? So I think it's an offshoot of the New Thought Movement, you know, which was also called the Mind Cure Movement. We know that the uh, son of the secretary of uh, Emmett Fox was a member of the very first uh, a group in New York, and then after they cleaned up their meeting, they would go see Emmett Fox. He's the Sermon on the Mount guy. Sermon on the Mount guy. He was a, he was a mystic. They, they, this was like a mystical reading of of the Sermon on the Mount, which includes the Lord's Prayer. But that you know, again, that um, uh, who was it? Uh, Emma Curtis Hopkins was considered the teacher of teachers in in the New Thought movement, and she would say that the sort of return of Christ as a metaphor for the next stage of our evolution, which I think for her meant kind of the introduction of this divine feminine and of this healing and of this ability for us to heal ourselves and heal each other. And so, you know, of course, out of the New Thought Movement, you have the sort of think and grow rich and positive mental attitude stuff, which is all fine. But, but at its heart, the New Thought Movement was about this kind of planetary evolution 
to this next stage in our development where we can basically, again, participate in this ongoing act of creation that wasn't some big bang moment way off in the past, but is, is presently occurring. And so it was that they were, um, and hold on, hold on, hold uh, on to translate. That's kind of like the origin of quantum, which is that you can create your reality with your thoughts. Right. And then, so I think that the only difference is, well, then it depends what we mean by my thoughts and my reality. I mean, we have this shared reality that, and this collective reality that I think I think ought to be the sort of focus of our concerns. Um, right. So it's not like a selfish right. thing. We don't right. mani- manifest for ourselves. We. But was, what was that? In. What was the idea then in the New Thought movement? Was it about self manifest? I mean, like I know when I when I it varied because like the the Nightingale stuff, like it's very self driven, but it's the same principle of creating. Yeah. Like, and, and you know what I'm talking about that, uh, what's that, uh, the secret, you know, have you ever right. Man- manifesting and all of that. So, yeah. so it, it, it's turned into that and there was probably different threads of it back then. And so unfortunately it, I think, I think it moved away from the more interesting thing. Like, so, well, Bill Wilson, for example, in the thirties visited this place called, uh, called joy farm. And it was basically a new thought retreat. And it was being, it was based on the teachings of Emma Curtis Hopkins and um, being run by a very nice uh, woman there who, who uh, they think they were treating like, you know, indigents and elderly people. And it was basically based on like meditation and contemplating, you know, consciousness and all these super interesting things. Bill Wilson loved it. He fell in love with it. They opened a treatment center there. Basically it was the first and maybe last AA treatment center. Um, they, they changed it to high watch farm and which still exists as far as I know, maybe in Connecticut. Yeah. And, I actually uh, know someone who just went there, I think, but keep going. Yeah. So, uh, there, there then was some kind of, so AA, uh, put together like a board of trustees to kind of run it. And, uh, on that board were kind of various people, but one of whom was the psychologist, the lay psychologist who was running it. And there was kind of a rift. There was a conflict that occurred where uh, this is according, uh, to William White's history excellent historian, uh, that uh, there was a conflict that formed where uh, some were more interested in sort of the psychology uh, and others were more concerned and more interested in the new thought. And the real AAers identified themselves more with the latter group, which was that that the new thought was more important, which was more uh, outward oriented, more interested in the world and others. And the psychological uh, a kind of faction was more interested in kind of turning inward and you'd imagine today like looking at our complexes and our childhood and kind of you know that personal psychology and there's still a, a split in psychology in fact if anything now there's a trend back towards more towards some kind of relational psychology where there is this concern with with the world and with others and with relationships that this seems to be the, the most right. profound and right. interesting area. Um, but what? so they were reading the I Ching. They were doing seances. I mean, we could go on and on. Bill, Bill, Bill Wilson uh, 
you know, eventually, as, as we know, too, was doing uh, LSD here in Los Angeles with Dr. Sidney Cohen. Uh, now you got to you got to you got to slow down because this is I want to yeah. really get into this. But first, I wanted to yeah. ask you something, which yeah. is like, you know, like I didn't want to go to AA. You know, I didn't want to go for so long. I didn't want to go anywhere. I mean, I wanted to stay high and I wanted to stop getting high and I didn't want to subscribe to anything. And I and I, I it took me a long time to, to really get a mystical gist in 12 step there were some like little breadcrumb trails like the thing that spoke to me the most was when they say they talked about finding your genuine self like mm -hmm. like that always appealed to me um mm -hmm. and 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 kind of like the golden rule kind of stuff and and and, and how by being less self-centered like you would get better and other people would benefit and i knew mm -hmm. something in there was better than what I was thinking, but I didn't put it together as, I mean, I'm still kind of not a hundred percent in on the mystic aspect, but I think your book really pushed me closer to it. And there's all these little hints. Did you, did you get a sense of the mystical aspects of 12 step before you did this research? Were there little breadcrumbs for you? Like, how did it sit with you? Kind of, I mean, it was a real superficial, thing like you say kind of the golden rule and think about others it was more like kind of uh a moralistic right thing which is fine we, and and you don't have to be certainly not to be christian or even spiritual to have that kind of more right. moral fiber compass whatever. yes right and uh though obviously as we know now uh for bill wilson it was a deeply personal experience it was some kind of experience of that oneness. I mean, at, at oneness, it's mm. actually, it is re related to a tone. Uh, mm. And so the feeling of being at one, literally, and, and I've, in the last two years, in the process of writing this book, and many things I didn't include or maybe just briefly touched on, but I mean, there's 950 references in the book. So anyone who's comes across a concept they're interested in, there's no one way to look at any of this stuff, of course. But if they're interested and want to follow up more, uh, it's all it's all referenced in the back of the book. But there's a philosopher um, named Daniel Kolak who wrote a book, and I've not read the whole thing. It's about 650 pages. <laughs> the, it, it's an airtight philosophical argument for us being the same person. And it's called I Am You by Daniel Kolak. And uh, that kind of thing is like, it blows my mind. Right. He, 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 makes, he makes the distinction between closed individualism, which is our kind of day-to-day you know, -day, uh, explanation of what we are, we're separate individuals, or there's empty individualism, which is kind of the like spiritual Buddhist concept, like we're nothing, we're non-entities. And he says that's closer to it, but that's not it. He talks about what he calls open individualism, which is that we are in fact the same person. We are there. There really is only one consciousness experienced from different points of view. He uses various analogies, like that's a dream. like ants, right? It's like hive. 
It's like the hive or, or birds that like I was watching these birds the other day and they're all just moving in these yeah. in these crazy group moves. And I was thinking about us in a similar way. So you're saying that the I dreams that. that we exist in each other's dreams in this way that wouldn't well, make kind sense. of. So we're dreaming. Say he uses uh, Kolak uses the example like he has a dream. He's in a dark alley. He's mugged. He's having full on interactions and conversations with these with his group of muggers. They're saying things that surprise him, that horrify him. He's terrified. He's going to die. But of course he wakes up and he realizes he was playing all the parts. So. Wow. So that's, that's crazy. The idea. That's crazy. Right. And so this is the idea, uh, in, um, early Hindu or they would call it Vedic thought, which is the idea of the Leela, which is in Sanskrit. That means the play of the Brahman. So the Brahman is the ultimate reality, and it basically, like an actor, the great actor, it, it plays all these parts. It pretends that it's all these different people, and that's us, that we're, we're, we are the ultimate reality getting lost in this kind of illusion of separateness and that we're these distinct people, which isn't bad. Um, it, it, I'm personally coming around to this, I mean, if you want to talk about spirituality, to this belief that, yes, we can kind of like look behind the veil and see that we're all one or whatever, but it, which is important, but that in that people dismiss the veil. They're saying, well, it's the, in Sanskrit, it's called Maya. It's an illusion. Right. Well, ma Maya also means creativity, play, uh, that, I'm more interested in the veil itself. I think that the veil is where it's at. I think that the things that separate us and the differences between us, that's the really interesting stuff. That's another way to put that. It's relationship. And everything is relationship and everything is process. Because that's Even what we like create. We create the veil. We create the separation. And that's from imagination. Exactly. And then it makes me think about the Bill Wilson in... Uh, in the big book of AA where it says God is everything or God is nothing. And when he said that, and I think that's in the book, is that in the book? It sounds familiar. It sounds like something he would say. I think it's in the book. And I always took it as like, if you don't, if you don't think God is everything, then it's nothing. You know what I mean? Like mm. I took it as this absolute, but then recently I was thinking about it and it's more like, no, God is actually everything. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And, and, and it's, and it's, and it's not nothing. It's just like every, like it's the interconnectedness that is everything, which, which you can call God, you know? C.G. Hume had a, had a, had a great way of dealing with it. Um, he would say in Christianity, they've kind of painted themselves into a corner where you have this benevolent loving God, but we're in a world where there's also evil and suffering. So how do you explain that? So Jung was really drawn to this concept of an unconscious creator. And that up until, uh, you could say even, I, I, I might argue the advent of cave art, that this creator was just you know creating life and more life on earth. And in the same way that we grow our hair and shape our bones and, and form our, our, our own eyeballs and beat our hearts without knowing how or what we're doing, but we're doing it. 
this this creator was creating a world unconsciously without ref being able to reflect on itself then through us this is a, this is an idea of a christian german christian mystic named jacob Bohm, who was a heretic by the way anyone who's interested in christian mysticism just search for all the heretics and and, and read everything that they wrote you know from meister eckhart to jacob Bohm to there was a bunch of um incredible women uh who wrote too they'd all had uh, seemingly they all they'd all had some kind of visionary experience or a near-death experience often um where, where they you know were shown whatever this information is that they're sharing but jacob Bohm who I think put it best, who Philip K. Dick was a huge fan of, uh, said that basically what our consciousness is, is the creator entering its creation mm. to be able to see itself and to be able to marvel at its creation. And this is the ancient hermetic thought that basically the creator in, in, in hermetic thought named uh, Atum, which is the Egyptian god of creation. So Atum creates uh, human beings in order to do two things. One, marvel at its creation with it, to have someone to share it with, and two, to be able to uh, participate basically in the completion of that creation. And that in fact, uh, the whole thing isn't finished until humans have played their part, which I believe is this next stage of our planetary evolution. And so uh, Carl Jung also, was a big fan of Jacob Bohm. So, by the way, too, was, um, I forget his name, Fox, who was the founder of the Quakers. The early Quakers were, were all Bemists, they, would, they were called. But, and of course, the Quakers were the only ones who developed um, this compassionate uh, treatment right. to in the 1800s. But we're going off now. No, definitely. But I, I think uh, I think uh, I want to get back to Bill Wilson and LSD. Sure. But I also want to just to say like that when somebody has an idea about the veil or about the creator yeah. and its creation, it's an idea. And it's like it goes back to your thought about imagination in general. Yeah. Like it's it's yeah. an idea. It's like sometimes I hated stuff like that because it was so it was so impossible to understand and also to prove. But if you can deal with it lightly as a fun idea, as opposed to, well, what does that exactly mean? You know what I mean? I think well, it can be and, fun. And we have ideas and we have, and it is fun and we have ideas anyway. They're just unconscious. Like a lot of us in the West have probably adopted the sort of standard definition of what the creator or what God is, which is uh, Alan Watts used to call it the monarchical view. This is like this, person the father who's in control and sort of is judging us and tells us how it's going to be uh in in uh, a lot of asian religions it's more organic there's just these different like a body like the brain's you know uh, uh, not in charge necessarily they all the all the parts all the organs work together it's more organic and then like i said in the in the vedic or the, or the hindu tradition it's all play it's the drama of the brahman so there's very different ways of looking at it and so we've adopted this one and and again unconsciously we'll go and act out in ways that kind of you know are are fed by or then in turn support that particular worldview so we have a worldview whether we know it or not and so in the book one of the things we're doing and, and we're not trying to say oh this this is the right worldview that's the wrong worldview we're just trying to say look at you there is a worldview Right. That, that, that we that, that we all subscribe to kind of whether we know it or like it or not. 
And here's some other possibilities. We don't know if ours is right, but I, have, I would put my neck up and say I have a pretty good feeling that the one we're, we're kind of living under now is, is not good. No, it's a mess. Um, and this book yeah. goes down a million interesting roads with this kind mm. of stuff and, and with yeah. past and with, with spirituality and with like cool occulty stuff too. Mm -hmm. I want you to blow the lid off of the Bill Wilson LSD psychedelics in AA scandal right now. Well, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to hear about, hear about this from central office, but okay. So, uh, <laughs> he, he was really good friends with a guy named uh, uh, Ger Gerald Hurd, who he called the most spiritual man he knew. Um, Gerald Hurd was was best friends with Aldous Huxley. In fact, along with Aldous Huxley's wife, they moved from England to California. I think sometime I want to say in the 30s, or it could have been the, maybe it was the 50s, but sometime in the earlier 1900s, and. Uh, in fact, it was Gerald Hurd who got Aldous Huxley uh, uh, into the sort of spiritual life. And um, they both came to L.A. and they actually joined uh, the Vedanta Society, which still, I think, has a location in Hollywood, I think, where they were active. And um, that was where uh, Huxley probably had already written Brave New World. And they, they talked, you know, he talked about, you know, Soma. Soma was bad in the, in the right. future in Brave New World. Everyone yeah. would be taking Soma and they'd yeah. be kind of asleep and, and, and all of this. And Soma, of course, is the, in the Vedas, is the, 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 they call it Soma wine, was this drink, we don't know what it is, but that they drank and produced the visions where, you know, people first thought of what the Brahman and the Atman and all these things are. That's where it came from. It came from the, the visions produced by the Soma. So he thought, obviously, in terms of drugs as a dis, as a disparaging thing and a negative thing um well until he met uh, a canadian psychiatrist uh named dr osman and uh who had been doing experiments in canada uh with mescaline so peyote and he was gonna um basically hook aldous huxley up at one point aldous was so excited about uh him coming down and, and doing that he was like writing him like hey can you just maybe send it like i really really he's like no 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 i'm gonna be there soon and that's when uh aldous huxley famously tried mescaline and wrote uh the doors of perception yes. and heaven and heaven and hell um so then uh gerald introduced bill wilson and aldous huxley and the three of them, I think it was 1956, is when Bill Wilson first tried with a with a with an American psychiatrist, uh, Sidney Cohen, who had been doing uh, LSD experiments at the VA hospital here in LA. And uh, Bill Wilson tried it, loved it. I mean, it re-inspired him, reinvigorated him. That's when he wrote the 12 and 12. It got him out of a black dog depression. Why? Uh, Why? On, when? When did it become a thing like? when they say no mind or mood altering substance, like why did he not have a deal with that? I don't know. I mean, they, they, this is probably around the same time that they, they, they kind of formed the bureaucracy of the organization with central office and they took power away from him, which in, in, in one sense was so brilliant because it really isn't run by one 
you know, this is not a cult of personality. It's not, the, it's not run by anyone. It's, a, it's almost anarchical. It's amazing. But the, who, whoever the sort of, I guess, leadership was, didn't like him talking about this stuff. He was, he was, he was into, he was into the LSD. Weird, he was really into the LSD. He was also into niacin. And apparently, before he died, he said, the thing I want to be remembered for uh, isn't uh, <laughs> AAA or even LSD. It was niacin, and that niacin was going to be the sort of future of addiction treatment. But I anyway, told you, didn't I tell you there was a niacin treatment? There was a niacin treatment place in Pennsylvania that wanted to, to sponsor Dopey oh, right, right. right when you guys did. <laughs> and it was like between, between you guys and the niacin group. So you know, in the well, end, when Bill Wilson died, he was like, remember me for the niacin. <laughs> yeah, That's niacin. crazy. That's so yeah. crazy. Is yeah. that not but the they would have to, It's crazy. It's crazy. And, and they would have to get him to stop talking about it this stuff because yeah, it just didn't jive. I think we like like simple look in America. We like kind of these simple, uh, or in, in the Western world, uh, simple explanations, like good things happen to good people, right. bad things happen to bad people. we love that. Right. And I don't think we could be further off with that. Right. And Bill Wilson tripping, you know, tripping out and, and, and just didn't fit it. Yeah. It didn't fit the, 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 my name is Bill W story. Yeah. I, I would have loved that scene and, and my name is Bill W with like James Woods, like tripping out in the sixties and, you know, right. riding in a motorcycle sidecar or something. Um, but that's a whole other thing. Evan, I think, uh, I, I think this is pretty incredible stuff. And, and like, where, where do you, uh, view the psychedelic in recovery now? I was actually talking to my sponsor this morning about this as I, I was reading the book and I was, I was talking about, Bill Wilson with my sponsor and my sponsor is a real meat and potatoes, Long Island AA guy. And he was just like, he's like, not for nothing. I, I, I don't, I don't not believe that psychedelics could get you to the next place. I just know that if I take psychedelics, I'm going to take them alcoholically. And I, <laughs> and I, I kind of feel the same way. You know what I mean? As soon as I imagine taking psychedelics, I imagine like, well, I'd probably want to have some bud because I'm going to be too jittery on the whatever. And I'm going to want to come down. And then all of a sudden I'm high. You know what I mean? Like that, that was, you'd have all the accoutrements. You'd have like little ding, ding, dingle balls or whatever hanging from your, 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 your car. I mean, I can see it with the, the lava lamp. I mean, yeah. You'd have to go all out. No, yeah. but that's how I am. Like that, that's exactly yeah. my sponsor's point too, <laughs> so, which is funny. But like, but at the same time, like when you read about psychedelic treatment and, and ayahuasca or microdosing psilocybin or MDMA for trauma, like I get it. I just, I'm scared of it because I know when I put something in me uh, to change the way that I think or feel, I tend to want to overdo it. Yeah, and and I don't have a strong opinion. I mean, I'm I'm definitely I'm, I'm paying attention to the to the research. I mean, you can't ignore, you know, when you're seeing psilocybin, uh, the the results uh, treating depression that are 400% better than standard antidepressants. I mean, you can't. It's very interesting, and we'll see where things go. Right. I I have a I have a personal pet theory based on you know, what I remember of my LSD experience is that it isn't so much the addicted people who this will be good for. Mm. I, I honestly think it's the sort of normal people. It's the everyday people. It's the soccer moms and the businessmen. I'm not saying everyone in the world has to turn on. I think enough of us, again, have to 
learn how to practice using our imaginations again and, and to experience the awe and wonder that is so missing in our world today. I mean, just that it's so amazing. It's so beautiful. This place, like it's incredible. It's so weird. And why do we do it this way? And all those feelings, you know, you probably remember that the addicted people, we've already been there. Right. We, we're, we're not the ones who need that medicine. We're not the ones who need to wake up. Right. We're too awake. Like I should give uh, my dad some MDMA so he can really feel again. Well, even, and so they, they call the, uh, uh, psychedelics entheogens and, um, which means, you know, basically that we can kind of see God. And then they call things like MDMA and pathogens that we learn how to feel other people. And, uh, that too, I think would be the next frontier and in, 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 in life. And so again, this book and the, the whole sort of point of it even is that, that it, it's not the addicted people I'm so worried about. I mean, obviously there's awful things happening, a hundred thousand people dying last year. Like this has to stop, but it's the normal people I'm really concerned about and who are locking us into this world that really could be otherwise. It could be, I think there could be paradise on earth. And again, it goes back to that worldview. Like, do we think, there's actually another theory I have that there's something that links the the heroin addict to the Buddhist to the Christian to almost all of us. We all want to leave. We don't like it here. We think it's broken. We think it's polluted. We think it's irredeemable. We think it's dirty. We think it's corrupt, and we want to transcend it. We want we out. Want to go, right. We want out. We want to go somewhere else. But again, back to Daniel Kolak, if we're all the same person. Guess what? You're going to be right back here. There, we're earthbound. There's no escaping. We're here. Let's work with it. Let's work with it. Well, there, um, I, I think there was another thing. I, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And I, I want to, like, there was something else that you wrote about in the book that I thought was really interesting for uh, addicts in recovery, uh, which is about how to actually experience recovery and how to live recovery. And you talk a lot about advocacy and like us being sort of beacons to share our story, to direct the next person towards, uh, wellness. Can you talk about that more? Well, again, I mean, there's no one braver in the whole world than people in recovery. Who else is kind of looking at their, their shit? Nobody nobody so whereas again in the mainstream culture where where these are supposed to be the least among us they become in in alchemy there there was this very powerful metaphor of the stone that the builder refused that people in recovery far from being kind of what is that story of the stone that the builder refused well that it becomes that's a the classic keystone. bob marley stone the stone yeah, that becomes, the builder refused shall be the head yeah. cornerstone that's right, or the keystone. So the keystone was actually laid on the ground, and the keystone was the first stone place that everything else was based around. So the keystone determines the entire orientation of this new construction. And so, so it's that misfit more, stone that becomes the yes, most important stone. Yes. Okay, I'm with yeah, you. Pre precisely. So, so w far from being kind of like worthless and and uh, unvaluable we become the leaders and we say, hey, we've done this before. 
we know our way around this place, uh, this 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 place of pain and darkness and you know poor behavior, all of it. You know because we use addicted people to be able to point to and say, well, they're the sick ones, they're the poorly behaved ones. We're all involved. I mean, right. You and you and I are t- today, right at this moment, are involved in child slavery. I mean, we just are. Uh, I want my kids and, to do as much work for me as possible. <laughs> yeah, at least they could do like clean up after themselves. Or something. No, actual. I'm trying something. to get them to make wallets in my house. <laughs> what was I going to? I was going to say something though. I was I was going to say something about um. Hold on one second, Evan. I just want to remind our audience about the amazing. Zencaster. They just have so many cool features like automatic post-production, which makes finalizing your podcast easy. When you have guests, they all have their own audio channels to make editing a breeze, which I would love that. And their files are stored on the cloud for easy access and peace of mind. So if you want to make a podcast without all the hassles that we stumbled through making Dopey, just check out Zancaster.com and be sure to enter the code DOPEYPODCAST without any spaces to access the link in the notes for a 30% discount on your subscription. So go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com, use the promo code and save 30%. Now, what were you saying, Evan? Well, well, well let me just say this too. So uh, rather than making them normal like us, I say it's the people who who have imagined ourselves as an us, as the as the sort of standard bearers. It's actually us who need to join the rest of the world. We need to join the human race. We need to join the planet, right? Because everyone in this world is living like, uh, you know, uh, someone who's been locked up, excluded, uh, um, devalued, debased. Um, that's the reality for literally like 90% uh, of the planet. So it's, it's not them who need to join us. It's us who need to join them. That's reality. And once we face the reality and face who we are, and, and the other kind of theme that runs through the book, beside there being a parallel between the addicted person and America, the commonality is to heal requires in very Jungian way requires an encounter with our shadow aspect. It's fully admitting and really accepting who we are. Right. So we don't even change. I mean, I don't honestly think we change as people, but what we do do in recovery is we learn to accept ourselves. I mean, that's what the sort of fourth step inventory I think is all about and what it was really meant to do. They were, Bill Wilson was very much a union. They finally corresponded um, uh, toward the end of both their lives. And uh, Bill was so happy to be able to talk to him and told him how all the early members used to read the I Ching, which you had written a um, uh, forward to. And of the uh, and also uh, Jung asked uh, uh, how uh, Roland Hazard was doing, because remember, it was Roland Hazard who was a, a patient of Jung who kept drinking, right. kept drinking, and who Jung finally said, look at man, I can't help you. What you need is a profound spiritual experience. That was actually that, that moment between Roland H. and Carl Jung, his doctor, was the kind of spark that created the whole model of 
AA, that it was a profound spiritual experience only that would uh, allow us to recover. And it's the same profound spiritual experience that could allow America to have compassion. Yes. So that it's it, our white light moment without without needing. It's like this is not all about that. You guys need to join 12 step. The fact is that you need to have in order to heal and in order to help the world. It's, it's like having a profound spiritual experience yeah. where you see compassion, you know, yeah. compassion is 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 the is the you know, the common denominator with the story and and passion is related to patience patience means etymologically uh, suffering so compassion literally means to suffer with right again just more proof we need to join the world who is suffering and we need to do everything we can to eliminate all that suffering all that unnecessary suffering well, which is the nat the nature of of addiction right is is that people are suffering needlessly and uh, obviously a lot of it starts in childhood uh, there's you know so much suffering going on sure children are my sort of biggest concern i i think there's there's a doctor here i think at uh, ucla who says if we could eliminate child abuse and child neglect we would shrink the 800 plus pages of the dsm down into a pamphlet within a, a generation or two right right well that's all i mean it's interesting because it's like the idea of, of suffering. Like I, I complain about suffering and I, I suffered at like the hands of like quote unquote controlling middle-class mm -hmm. Jewish parents. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I didn't suffer mm -hmm. the way, you know, real neglected people suffered. And I mm -hmm. think that, I think that we, you and I privately have talked about like the idea of trauma on a sliding scale and like, mm -hmm. no matter, like you might not, like my mother didn't, you know, commit suicide through mental illness, but she like told me that I was fat and stuff and it made me go crazy in my own. I became a heroin addict out of the whole thing. Not that I want to, you know, pin this on her. I'm just saying like children suffering is a weird thing because people are so sensitive. You know what I mean? So, yeah. And, and, and it's the culture too. I mean, you know, obviously like when I go on podcasts and stuff and I'm talking to recovery people, they want to know my story. Like, I don't think my story is unique. I think that there is intergenerational stuff going on that is, um, you know, often centers around child abuse and neglect, but there's also like ideals of the culture, like even in that sense, like how we should be shaped or what our sexual orientation should be or how we should act. Right. And these, these things are like kind of, uh, we're, we're, we're indoctrinated into and our parents, you know, because they were taught, well, you got to work, you got to work hard. And no one ever said life was fair. And all these are all, every single one of these things is an idea. And the ideas can be very harmful. Um, you know, and I, I think the most harmful one is the idea that we're separate people. Right. Or that, or that we can't get better or that we can't, or, have, that, or that, yeah. Or that we can't have a nice life or we can't be happy or that things can't change, you know? Precisely. All right, Evan. I think this was amazing. Did you have a good time? My dad hates it. Great time. My dad hates it when I ask the guests if they had a good time. I like take a oh, deep breath dad, after it. Time. I said, "You have a good time." My dad's like, "Stop asking him that." <laughs> no, I love I love the question. I appreciate your concern for my well being. I had a great time. We always have a good time when we talk. This was perhaps our, my favorite conversation with you, and I'm glad you were able to record it. Oh, I fucked up. I couldn't. Re I missed. I didn't record oh. any of it. <laughs> 
Um, Let's but, do it again. Let's take it from the top. Evan, uh, I am incredibly grateful to you. Obviously, you know how, I mean, how personally grateful I am that you guys support the show. Like, I can't thank you enough for that. Uh, but I also love this book and I love you. I think you're a, a great guy and just like the, the sweetest too, person that I ever get to talk to. And I can't wait to meet thank you in you. person. Um, thank you. Likewise. And Next thank, month. Yeah, dude. This th month. This month. Oh, yeah. And the book is called Can America Recover? And where can they get it? Amazon.com. Go to Amazon, buy the book. It is a lot of incredible information. And it's Bob, too. Maybe one day Bob will come back on the show and he could tell us his take on this thing. He should. Yeah, he'll be back. Bob, Bob, you can't keep Bob down too long. Evan, thank you again. It was, it was a joy to have you on. Thank you, Dave. And before we go, I just want to thank Evan again for coming on, even though I thanked him 10 times. I want to thank you guys for listening. Please write reviews on iTunes. Try to make them positive. Fucking Joey Pepper. Write five-star reviews. Make them positive. Write emails. Write voicemails. Follow us on social media. Reviews make my dad happy. Reviews made Chris happy. Reviews make me happy. And if you send in a voicemail or an email and we read it or play it, you get a pair of socks. Anyway, thank you again. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. All right, I'm going to play this song, but only because uh, I think it's going to make me look a little bit more tired. I'm just going to start it.
Where did you write? What did you write that? I like the lyrics. I hope they can hear. 